Welcome to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. This is episode 66. And sitting with me again, I have Abby. Abby, tell us about our guest today. Hey, Matt. Okay, today we're talking with Steven Spramo. He works in the chief engineer's office here at Ames. And basically, his job is to guide other engineers mm -hmm. through the development of hardware that's going to go into space and carry life sciences missions, for example. So Steven started as an electrical engineering student at San Jose State, but he knew he wanted to work with medical technology okay. and life sciences, which is cool. And so he found the perfect role for that here. And he's worked on cancer research that flew on the space shuttle and studying how plants grow in space. And then coming right up in November, he has a new mission launching. It's a small sat called ECAMSAT, okay. which he'll explain. But this one's very cool. It's about studying how bacteria are resistant to our antibiotics and whether that's worse in space and how it all works to make things better for astronaut health and also for public health issues here on Earth. It's always, it's the thing that I get a kick out of. Everybody thinks of NASA, they think of rockets, they right. think of telescopes looking right. out, but there's a huge biology aspect. Exactly. And not just the astrobiology of looking out into the stars and like trying to find life, No. but like but understanding biology. And it's like this really mm -hmm. neat overlap. Yeah, exactly. So before we go too far into it, just a reminder for folks, if you want to give comments, participate in the podcast, give any kind of feedback, we have a phone number. It's 650-604-1. 400. But if you want to do it the new hip way, we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley or on all of the social media platforms that you can think of. So without any further delay, here is Steven Spremo. Welcome, Steven. <laughs> so we always start this off the same way. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to NASA? How did you get to Silicon Valley? Thanks for having me. I, I got to NASA. Um, the story is uh, when I was very young at, yeah. in third grade, I uh, my brother and I were writing to NASA to try and get like public outreach type photos of the space shuttle okay. or the planets and things like that. And we actually got responses, which was really, really cool. So. That gained my interest when I was really young. Uh, and then through high school, I had more interest as I learned chemistry and physics and all of the, went through all my classes. Uh, and I just really had this desire to come work for NASA. I really wanted to be an astronaut. Okay. And uh, went through college and I, I got an internship in 1998. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, at NASA Ames here. Oh, really? So were you already local? So you already knew about Ames or did you come yeah, from somewhere was, else? I'm local from the Bay Area here in the okay. Silicon Valley. And uh, I went to San Jose State as an electrical engineering student. And in 1998, I joined a group called uh, Sensors 2000 that was doing okay. uh, life sciences, biological sensors. So I was an electrical engineer and I had this focus that I wanted to combine electrical engineering with medical technology or life sciences experiments. Okay. And I thought there was a real future to that. And uh, th it, it was my future. And I started <laughs> working on space uh, experiments that included biological sensors. So Okay. So it was like, so as a kid, you're like, this is NASA. This is what I want to do. And then that kind of helped shape like what you studied and move yeah. along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had this very specific focus of what I thought I needed to study. So like in college, I had the electrical engineering courses, but I took classes like zoology and extra chemistry that biologists would take. So okay. I really kind of started learning the language of scientists as well. And 
basically my career has been listening to requirements of scientists on what they need to study in space, and then I help design it. One of the things that AIMS is, you know, bioscience studies, it's like the experiments, the science experiments that actually go up into the International Space Station or went on the shuttle. So did you already know that that was a thing that AIMS was already doing, or is it just happened to be that what you were interested in matched with what was already here? I had I had some knowledge uh, that Ames was involved in life sciences. Uh, yeah. We had a friend um, of the family that had been working on experiments at NASA, and so I, I did have some knowledge. So I, you had the inside track. You, you knew what people were already doing a, a little, little, a little bit, yeah. And then when you did the internship, did you just like go online, or did you know somebody? How did that how that work out for you? Uh, when I joined here, uh, I did have someone who introduced me yeah. to the whole internship program, okay. but it wasn't like a direct in. So I interviewed with, uh, I think it was, I, I don't have an account, but maybe yeah. like 15 managers. Really? Uh, That's, okay. And so what happened is I kind of had this very specific goal or dream of what I wanted to do. And they said, well, you really need to meet with this one specific manager. And he was out on medical leave for a number of months. So <laughs> okay. what they kind of did was interview me and see if there was a number of different positions on site that I would fit with. And they kept saying, you belong in the Sensor 2000 group. Okay. And um, fortunately, they decided to take me on as an intern. And then they converted me to full-time civil servant later. Uh, and then I got my position. So I was a uh, co-op student, which is like a civil say, servant student yeah. and while I was going to school at San Jose State in electrical engineering. And it, nowadays, they've replaced it with what's called the Pathways Program. But before, it was like they had different variations of co-op where people would be able to go to school and also work at the same time or or right. some mix of that and then basically get into the civil service afterwards. Yeah, that's I started out as a civil servant from day one as a student. So all that time yeah. counted towards my oh, that's awesome. retirement and all those things that, oh. that we're getting as benefits. For so as, when you come service. on um, while you're, you know, you're working on in, in this group, what, what is some of the stuff that you're working on initially? So I worked on uh, these electrochemical sensors. So when I came to NASA, I was actually starting to run a wet chemistry lab. So okay. which was a little unusual being an electrical engineering student. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. And so what I was building was uh, electrochemical sensors to measure metabolic changes for cancer cells that are growing. So we look at pH okay. changes in cancer cells. And the whole system that we were uh, working on was an automated system that would sustain life for C6 neuroblastoma cells, brain cancer cells. <laughs> okay. I was like, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so we were, the, the idea is to fly this up on the space shuttle. Okay. On STS-93, which was a Columbia mission. Okay. In 1999, it launched, uh, and we worked with the Army, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, okay. and the sensors were direct in-line measurements with the cells. And so, as the microgravity environment changed, we were looking to see if cancer grew different in space. And so, okay. the sensors I developed, I built like 150 sensors, and I think 16 of them flew to space and oh, wow. made these detections. So we had spares and extras and, you know, selecting the best of the group. But they were from scratch. We literally yeah. built them 100% in the lab and then okay. interfaced them with an electrical system that read it out, stored it, and mm -hmm. then we retrieved the data when it came back from space. Crazy. Because, like, oftentimes when you think of, like, cancer research, NASA isn't the first thing that pops into your brain. So, but then again, it's like understanding how things 
grow with little to no gravity helps you to better understand how those things operate. And as you can understand them, you can better fight them or cure them or move along. Right, yeah. It's, it was kind of an amazing opportunity to merge technologies and then benefit um, yeah. this cancer research. So. And so, so even thinking about those sensors, I'm trying to think, so what does that exactly look like? Is it like a Petri dish or something with, like, with the actual cells in it? And then you have your sensors that like, kind of read it? And what kind so, of changes are you looking at? So what, there were fluidic loops. So it was called Biona C. Okay. And um, there'd be bi- hollow fiber bioreactors that would grow the cells. And then there was media that was fed to the cells, so sustained life. Okay. And that would circulate through with a pump. Mm-hmm. And then from time to time, we would take measurements or draws of fluid off from the sample where the bioreactor was, measure the H plus ion content or pH. Okay. Okay. And then read that out to a circuit card and then store the data. And then we'd see trends to see how things were growing in space versus on the ground. So we had the identical system on the yeah. ground as we did in space, looking for a difference in any kind of metabolic activity. Do yeah. the cells do something different in space or not? And so that was the experiment. And that was kind of a technology demonstration. Um, okay. The Army was also interested for their own aspects of research too. So moving along from your work then, what did that eventually move into? What other things did you work on until you landed where you are now? Right, so the next uh, experiment I worked on was a space station experiment. It was called European Modular Cultivation System. Okay. and, and that, <laughs> that is... Uh, <laughs> yes, tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that EMCS, was a, it's a centrifuge system that's up on space station right okay. now. And we designed uh, some cartridges that basically plug into that system, and we were growing plants. Uh, plant seedlings in space. So okay. we were studying Arapidopsis thaliana seedlings in which we <laughs> were doing a phototropic response. And so okay. so basically we would induce light and shine light on, on these while we were rotating at one-third gravity levels, which would equivalent of Mars, okay. be the equivalent of Mars, uh, one-sixth G, which is equivalent of the moon, and then um, microgravity levels, Basically looking at how plants grow in space, there's basically photoreceptors on plants Mm -hmm. that activate different responses. And because in microgravity, the plants grow more of in a tangled ball or confused state, Yeah, they don't grow as well. So we were studying how do we engineering-wise alter that by having light affect these photoreceptors. And actually we can change how the roots actually grow Okay. And how the green leafy portion or cotyledon portion would um, also grow. And with altered state, we look at the RNA analysis or the genetic aspects mm-hmm. of what was going on to study how to go to the moon and Mars eventually. Nice. So that was another experiment I worked on. I specifically worked on the optics to make sure that the light was basically being equally distributed across yeah. all the plants and a number of other circuit-based uh designs that were supporting that. And then also making sure it's biocompatible because when you lock everything in a chamber, uh, there's other gases or volatiles that come off from the circuit boards or other All things. variations. And it can cause uh, the biology to, to die. Or, oh. And so we had to do other things to actually make sure that the air inside the chamber was uh, 
basically clean enough that mm-hmm. would extend the life of these uh, systems. And I guess that makes sense because if you think of plants have, which have evolved over millions of years with gravity pulling down on them, um, and then just seeing how once you get remove that gravity, you change it to you know the Earth or Moon, different levels. I mean, it helps us to understand if we're planning on eventually going to Mars and doing things that to understand how those plants react. But that's smart of thinking like you've seen plants move to get closer to the sunlight. They kind of grow in those ways. So using that to manipulate it to change the way it grows. Yeah. So there's it's pretty neat. Yeah. There's those two two responses that we were studying: gravitropic yeah. and phototropic. Mm-hmm. So. The light, I guess, uh, from what the botanists are telling me, there's a photoreceptor. And we were studying and uh, putting blue light and red light on the roots. And actually, you can make them go away or toward those lights. Really? You can help so, control them? Yeah. So that, in, in addition to the white light, that's yeah. kind of making the green leafy portion simulating the sun. and But also, the roots actually do very specific things uh, with light as well. well. I get a kick out of it because typically when people think of NASA, you think of, rockets and astronauts but at the same time it's like yay you're in space or you're on the moon or you're on mars at the end of the day what are you going to do there you know (laughs) so this is what these science experiments there's questions there's hypotheses to figure out okay what can we learn by being in these places that we can't learn from earth and and, you know kind of working out those those theories so so what are you working on now what's kind of like your day job uh so i'm in the chief engineer's office here at nasa ames which uh there's a number of, of things I do in that role. Um, I've, I've been at NASA 18 years now, and I get called in if there's maybe a problem on, mm-hmm. an, on a hardware development that can't be figured out, or there was a mishap, something yeah. went wrong, um, trying to figure out lessons learned, like why did we have something go wrong in the first place, and yeah. identifying root cause. Um, so uh, also there's a number of standards and uh, procedures like it's almost like a prescription, like how, how, before you start a project, like how do you formulate it mm-hmm. to, to, you know, I, I don't know, not to guarantee success, but to increase chances of success. So, yeah. um, so that's kind of my role is to work with engineers and guide them and put some, I guess, milestones or gates to What's do a checklist of sorts. Yeah. It's, it's like equivalent of a, a checklist to make sure that you've completed a number of tasks that would help in the reliability of a system. Well, you figure if something's going to go wrong, you'd rather it go wrong here at Ames where, where you're like, you're working on, you know, experiments. Like, it'd rather that it go wrong here while we're practicing as opposed to while it's in space. So it's kind of learn some of those lessons. Early. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So we, we take things to the test chambers here yeah. at, at, you know, the vacuum chamber or mm-hmm or the vibration shake table, and we simulate all the things that might go on in space to try and uh, basically mitigate or make sure that doesn't happen in space. So an yeah. astronaut is not experiencing a piece of gear that is uh, failing for any reason. So yes, we that's kind of <laughs> Test it in advance. That's kind of what I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because I, I always think about it of, you know, not only being in space or surviving like the vacuum or harsh conditions, but it's like you also got to survive a rocket launch. Yeah. So that, you know, with like very, you know, intense moments where you don't want your science experiment to fall apart, <laughs> like on its way up. Right. Yeah. There's a- basically 10 to 15 minutes that there's a pretty harsh environment going up and, uh, and through different stages of the mission of firing a rocket engine, there's vibrations mm-hmm. and there's other environmental effects. Acoustics. Acoustics. Everything. And 
Um, absolutely, and just the change to vacuum as, as well, once you get in the vacuum space and the thermal extremes, and so after you're past that launch phase. But yeah, there's a number of, of environments we test for, yes. So, so okay. So now I've heard of one of the things that you're working on called EcamSat. So yeah. that sounds like a fancy acronym. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what that is. So it's uh, EcamSat stands for Equali Antimicrobial uh, Satellite. Okay. And so what we're studying on this, it's a CubeSat. So it's a six U spacecraft. Um, six U is it's like a standard. It's basically roughly. A shoebox size, like a yeah. large shoebox, or a loaf of bread, or something. It kind of yeah. Hefty. This, this particular one is kind of like two loaves of bread. Okay, in, in size, as uh, good comparison. And we're studying antibiotic resistance in space, which is okay. a really big problem on the ground, as well as may impact uh, future travel for astronauts in the future. And what we are finding out through a number of other experiments that have gone up, and this will help validate what mm -hmm. we're learning is that E. coli or yeast or a number of bacteria are more virulent in space. They actually grow at a rapid oh, pace. Oh, really? They're like stronger in space? They're stronger. And oh, the wow. effects are, uh, this was an unexpected um, yeah. outcome. And so there is a parallel between the ground and you know what we live, we're experiencing on the earth, antibiotic resistance, and trying to figure out what mechanisms causing that in space. So okay. ECAMSAT, is going into a microgravity environment, taking mm -hmm. a 48 well plate microfluidics array, basically each okay, one of those. Yeah, so it's a fluidics card that has um, milliliters in scale of fluid okay. going through it. So imagine, uh, uh, the best way I've been able to explain the volume of each one of these little cells is like an eraser head. So imagine 48 eraser head, okay. like a pencil eraser uh, okay. worth of volume on a card and we flow through different antibiotic strengths. So we grow up the cells, so we put it in hibernation before launch, and okay. it sits on the pad, it's in hibernation. We get up to space. It launches, it goes to the space station. They, yeah. And then when it gets up to space, it has a deployer, a dispenser. Okay. And then a door opens, and there's a container it rides up in, and after the primary satellite is gone and yeah. we, we can do no harm to it yeah. the doors open and we eject this out with a spring pusher foot okay. and then it kind of has a tumbling effect and it yeah. it has it's it's got a passive system to to align with a magnetic field and null out this okay. and stabilize its figure orbit. out where it is and and that takes about four days after we're stable and the microgravity environment is the best that it can be Mm -hmm. uh, the experiment starts. And okay. for 150 hours, we go through a number of events and we feed the cells. They grow up to what we call stationary phase. And they've eaten all the sugars that we feed them is okay. basically what happens. And then we have a optical detector that shines light through, mm -hmm. uh, red, green, blue, and the absorptance pattern is noticed on a photo detector below it. So we shine okay. through the card and able to look at how things are growing. Okay, and so that's see how trends. you know. And between the different colorimetric measurements, we can tell trends and there's things that happen in red, maybe not in blue. And, okay. And so we calibrate that way. The other thing we do then is we administer antibiotic and stress the cells out different concentrations, there's a response, okay? So you're building the antibiotic resistance response. 
And in microgravity, there's a wild type and a mutant we're studying. And the principal investigator is looking at the scientists, uh, looking at this uh, Dr. A.C. Mateen at Stanford. His hypothesis is that the two, the wild type and the mutant strains will stress at a different response rate. Okay. And then we can look at that and try and get the genetic uh, marker to kind of explain what's going on, why things are becoming more resistant. Okay. And then we basically look at the trend after that by administering something called Alamar Blue. Okay. And Alamar Blue is a, like a, a dye that it kind of changes color mm-hmm. as the cells metabolize. So we can look at trends and curves of how the cells continue to live on and the way they intersect in the graphs or the curve fit of the trends will tell us if, in comparison with the same exact experiment on the ground, if the space environment is responsible for doing something different, okay, like microgravity or radiation versus a 1G environment on the ground. Yeah, it's crazy because you think, obviously, as we look at like human exploration or having people in the space station, it behooves us to understand how, you know, how bacteria or, you know, like E. coli, how things grow in differently in, in microgravity and having all of this stuff, uh, you know, just seeing all the differences and, and understanding that better to then prevent or just to just it's like not only could it have benefits for us here on the Earth, but also help for that further exploration as well. Yeah, the idea here is this is decade we call decadal science. Okay. So it's, it's a decadal survey of what we need to do further space exploration. So this oh, supports okay. astronaut health for mm-hmm. long duration exploration missions. So we have to understand this as kind of a key way to the future. How yes. would we administer antibiotics to an astronaut is really what the question is here, but there's a secondary purpose on the ground, is are we going to discover something in space that could help antibiotic resistance um, issues on the ground? And that's becoming a really large problem for you know terrestrial or Earth aspects of antibiotics. I like whenever they're talking about the International Space Station, they always say, working off of the Earth for the Earth, because this all has <laughs> benefits not only for going, you know, going on the way to Mars. And this is, you know, as you're talking about checklists before. This is one of those things you need to understand before doing that journey to Mars. But then there's the side effects can be finding out how to solve other problems here on Earth as well. Yeah, abs- absolutely. In this case, we might need to have the astronauts having, you know, dosing of like four, five, ten times, whatever the amount is. And But also, if we find a pathway of how antibiotic resistance, what the mechanism is, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's something that might be a game changer. And one thing I didn't mention is, uh, you know, after the experiment's done, we yeah. store all this data and then we telemeter that back down to Earth. I, I was going to say, so the small set hitches a ride on a rocket where somebody else has paid more money to go. <laughs> Once that goes off, it's safe. You launch yours, start that science experiment. And, and yeah, is it just they sends that data back to you guys here? So Yeah, so we have a great program that basically we work with Santa Clara University and they have mm-hmm. a ground station. We have two antennas on our system. Okay. And what happens is the electronics uh, store the data as we as we're going through the experiment, all this light measurement. And, yeah. and you're controlling all that from the ground. It's up there? Or, or is it automated? It's actually that? automated. It will oh, run wow. on its own. And then um, we call it and ask for requests for the data through okay. Santa Clara University. And it's a great outreach thing because the students there are operating a satellite for us. And oh, they, that's awesome. they retrieve the data and deliver it to NASA. Um, so it's 
rough it's not a lot of data it's like a megabyte of data okay. for the whole mission um, it takes about two months through the orbits and everything that we mm -hmm. do to get that small amount of data we don't have this comparatively <laughs> to the laddie mission i worked on we had yeah. a major breakthrough on laser communication that was, and that was went to the moon that went to the moon and that yeah. had a 622 megabit per second download rate oh, from wow. the moon per you know per <laughs> second so it's like a dvd a second versus this it's a, yeah you, you, smaller you, it's smaller but you don't need that much horsepower to this because we're the data file is not very big so okay. it's scalable and what a cubesat uh, does is um pretty interesting because it only operates uh off three to ten watts of power if you think yeah. about your old incandescent light bulb that you grew up with in probably your house or this is a fraction of that, what it's consuming yeah. and doing all these tasks and reporting home and delivering, you know, a whole experiment that's been automated. And I always find that aspect really a, say, a, amazing. So you know, like being more compact, being easier, being a, a, like, you know, a small sat, you know, using that cube sat kind of like modules, um, it makes it cheaper. It's easier to do, uh, you know, if something goes wrong. It's like, I'm sure replacing it. Yeah. Isn't, isn't the end of the world. The other thing that uh, I didn't mention earlier is the temperature requirements. We maintain. Um, oh, yeah. This, we have to simulate the body's temperature. And so. And you're doing that in space. Doing it in space. <laughs> so 37 degrees centigrade is normal human body temperature. Okay. So we're simulating uh, that. If we go above that, we'll simulate a fever and ruin the experiment and kill off the E. coli. And how do you get that temperature while on the satellite that's in space where it's pretty cold, as I understand. Right, so we designed this, so orbit after orbit, it's capable of maintaining at 37 degrees plus or minus a half degree centigrade. Oh, that's crazy. So we have looked at models, and we model this to basically dynamically every orbit maintain its temperature. We do models that are up, upwards of 650,000 calculations to look at all the situations mm -hmm. that thermally it's still stable. and so. That's really uh, engineering feat that this oh, system crazy. is maintaining. And I, I, you know, as a CubeSat being low cost and we're still achieving this requirement is, is kind of amazing. And taking a lab up the space. And uh -huh. it, like a mini and, lab, and automated too. Right. It's automated. Uh, I think another thing I didn't mention is that, you know, it's, uh, we take a little canister that's got one atmosphere. It's got lab air in it. So okay. that's something the cells also need need mm -hmm. to have to simulate the environment. So. And, and after the experiments run its course, you've got all your data, then it just burns up in the atmosphere? Or how does that how does that work? Yeah, since it's a low Earth orbit system, uh, we, we maintain um, orbits generally that are less than 25 years in life. Okay. And then just natural decay of atmospheric drag around the Earth, it will eventually pull down into the Earth's atmosphere and literally vaporize. Vaporize. Yeah. So I, I can imagine somebody thinking, you're sending E. coli into space. <laughs> what if this crashes on my house? It's like, no, it's never going to even get close to that. It's, It'll get burnt up and vaporized long before you even know it. Yes, uh, we get the, <laughs> the, that <laughs> reaction a lot. And, you know, <laughs> what are you doing sending E. coli up to space? Is this a dangerous thing? And, and yeah, uh, You probably have more in your bathroom <laughs> than, than, <laughs> or on the doorknobs than you do in this the particular strain we we were sending up is yeah. uh, it's it's a common strain that okay. actually people are treated for uh, you know regularly. Okay. And okay. So 
uh, antibiotics and everything are, are regularly given to patients on Earth for this particular strain we're studying. Nice. It's pretty. It's, it's a normal one. People can calm yeah. down. Anyways, yeah. it's going to burn up in the atmosphere. Yeah, it, it's going to. It's it's never going to reach back down to the. Yeah. So, um, anybody who's got questions for Stephen, we are using Twitter. So we're at NASA Ames. And we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if anybody has questions, we'll just like we'll just push them on over to you. Uh, I'd be glad <laughs> we'll to respond. Glad to respond to anybody's questions. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming over. All right. Thank you. Thank you.